Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. Um, I think it's kind of selfish, actually, because I do it just to keep my own peace for the most part. I just don't have a lot of room to be angry. I'm definitely angry. I definitely still have anger inside of me for a lot of the things that happened. But I've had to learn how to channel that and and live with it in a way that is not emotionally draining and taxing on me every day. I really just kind of had to let go of a lot of things. I still hold people 100% accountable, but that's like, that's a them thing. You know, those were choices that they made. And I think the way I was holding on to it, I was holding so much guilt for feeling like I made them act that way or I was a bad kid and I made them do that to me. And I had to reshape the way I thought about everything. I'm super grateful for my education. You know, I went to college. I recently just got back from a child protection program at Harvard. I've just learned so many amazing things um, from so many amazing people and I've applied them to my life as well and I, you know, I read tons of books and people send me books all the time and mostly do it for me. It's not, it's not for them. I don't want them to take any more of my energy than they already have. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Lisa Marie Arnett. Lisa Marie was taken from her biological mother's home with her three other siblings when she was two years old. She was then put in a biological placement with an aunt and uncle she didn't know, and things just got worse. From that point... She was in 36 placements by the time she was 18. Then she was homeless for about three years, put herself through college, went into the military, became a helicopter mechanic, and turned her life around. Now she's living with her little daughter and advocating for foster youth. Here's Lisa Marie Arnett. Hey, I'm here with Lisa Marie Arnett. Hey, Lisa, hi. Hi, how's it going? Good. I want to make sure that we're recording because it's always like, oh yeah, we're here, good. All right, so tell me a little bit about... um, who you are, how you're raised, what are your first memories? So I was raised in foster care in Oregon. Um, Some of my first memories, I guess, I remember getting into a police car um, and I was excited about it, but I didn't know I was going to foster care. Um, And then we went and stayed with a biological placement, um, an aunt and uncle that we didn't know, we hadn't met before. Um, right. So how, how, how old were you? Cause you were really little, right? I was two. Yeah. You were two and you had brothers and sisters. I do. I have, um, there's six altogether, two 
girls were removed before the other four of us were born. And then um, when the police came, there was four of us in the home and all four of us went to the biological placement. Right. And that was not a success, right? Well, actually, first, I want to talk to you about your older sister, the one who was with you at first. What what happened to her, Lisa? Um, she was violently sexually assaulted in our biological home. Um, my mom would offer up her kids to drug dealers um, in exchange for drugs. And shortly after we went to our biological placement, the caseworkers felt it was best if um, she had more intense one-on-one treatment. And so she was taken um, and separated from us at that time. And she shared with them that we were also being abused in our biological placement. And it was just hard to get people to believe her. And they finally did believe her. And we were removed after that and placed into a different home. Right. So when you say your biological placement, that was your aunt and uncle, right? Yeah, correct. So what happened to your sister? Did you see her again? Yeah. So we had weekly visits um, for years. We would go meet up at parks and see each other at the um, visitation centers. And one day they just told us that she needed special help and we never saw her again. They said that she went to a psych ward and we asked and asked and asked. I think I was about eight and she was 11 at that time. And they never had any answers for us. We never saw her again. And I didn't find out what happened to her until years later. I was in my early 20s and I found out that she had been sex trafficked. She was kidnapped from the mall and taken to Canada for child sex trafficking. She was rescued a few months later and they did actually put her in a psych ward then. And um, she ended up running away from there and being um, in and out of different types of child prostitution, um, which I hate that they call it that because that implies consent and there's no consent when you're a child. It's, it's the wrong term. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's just exploitation and abuse, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I started making TikToks looking for her. And then I found out about a year ago, there was a documentary. It was a couple years old. I was still in foster care when it was made. Um, but that was the first time I ever heard of it or saw it. And it was co-produced by George Clooney and Libby Spears. And I reached out to Libby and I, I talk to her now. She started her own sex trafficking prevention organization because my sister. Right. And that film was called The Playground, right? Yeah. yeah. It was, it's called Playground. Yeah, Playground. And I was so shocked. I just remember someone wrote me on TikTok and they said, this, this is a documentary that you have to see. And I looked it up and the very first picture was me. Really? And yeah, so my sister has all the same pictures that I do. And she must have been confused when she gave it to them because they thought it was her. And I was like, that's that's me. So that's interesting because I, I've seen part of the movie and I just recently watched the trailer. And I think that picture is in the trailer. I think they recently edited it out. Okay. Oh, I'm not then, sure. then the one Because there is a picture of a young girl that could be you. Yeah, there's there was a lot of them that was me, and I was just shocked. Yeah, wow. So you've never seen her again, right? And she was your protector, really. She was, yeah. So she would find food for us out of the garbage. She was, she was four, and the rest of us were three, two, and one. And um, my mom would disappear for days at a time. 
and she would have to find us food and take care of us. And then when like the abuse at the home would get really bad, she would always protect us and kind of take the brunt of it for us. And so when we were separated from her, it's kind of like separating us from our mother figure. Like she was, she was that person for us. Just so I'm clear, Lisa, did you ever see your sister again? Your, your older sister, the one who was trafficked? Yes. So after I started making the TikTok videos, you know, I found out about the documentary and I, I shared that story very publicly. I had a police officer from Oakland reach out to me because after the documentary was made, my sister was 18 when it was made, she disappeared again and, and started using um, different types of drugs. She became homeless. Um, a police officer in Oakland reached out to me and, and offered to go to the homeless camps. And really? Wow. Wow. And I was, I was on my way back from drill. I was, she, she found my phone number. She must have been a good internet slip too. She called me. I was on my way back from drill and um, I was driving and she FaceTimed me and I had to pull over on the side of the road. And that was the first time I've seen my sister since I was eight. Wow. And that female police officer found her? She did. Yes. I, it was like a moment of relief. She she recognized me and she was like, I knew you guys would look for me. But unfortunately, she was, she, she seems like she's having a very hard time recovering from her trauma. And um, I don't think that the drugs are helping. Um, and she disappeared again right after that. And I haven't been able to find her again. But I was really grateful just for that opportunity to see her. And she's still alive. And, and she did recognize me for the most part. Um, it was mixed with some confusion, but. It was an amazing experience. Um, I also found her kids with some internet. You found, okay, she has kids. She does. I have a niece and nephew and um, they're teenagers. They are amazing. I found their dad's phone number and I reached out to him and he'll find my sister occasionally. He'll see her, but he did what he needed to do and made sure that the kids were safe. And so they are with him. Yeah. I talk to them. I send them little Starbucks gift cards. I don't know. I don't know how to relate to them. So I'm like, here you go. Like, I just want them to know that they have family. And they asked if they could come visit me. And I said, absolutely. Oh, that'll be nice. We're talking about it right now. Um, they're great kids. They're doing great. They do sports. They are doing great in school. And they're just really good kids. And my sister actually named them after us, her siblings. So they all have, they all have parts of our name in their names. And I think it's really Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And there was no dad in the picture. No. Mm -hmm. And are all the kids by the same dad or are you? No, there's multiple different fathers. Mm -hmm. So what happened in that home with your aunt and your uncle? And, you know, I just, I just want to say, I just admire the heck out of you for being able to talk about this. So you just, you take your time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the home with our aunt and uncle, um, there was a lot of different types of abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. If we would like, we had punishments. One of them was called the water punishment. And if we would finish our juice, we had those little plastic cups. If we would finish our juice before our dinner. They would make us sit in a chair and drink water until we urinated on ourselves. And then they would send us to our room. Why? Um, Why? To, to, to what end? Do you know? I don't. I think it was about power, control. You know, they'd be like, don't finish that. And, you know, if I'm thirsty or choking. And 
it's a very like tiny cup. Um, there was one instance where my aunt tried to drown my little brother. She held him under scalding hot water. He was probably two at the time. And Michelle was there. I have a baby book that kind of gives us, um, my caseworker made it for me. And it kind of gives us just a little bit of our past. And the caseworkers were aware of this happening. And so they wrote it in there for me. They kind of made it kid-friendly. I was young when they gave it to me. But we were duct taped to chairs. We were slapped across the face. They would call us all kinds of horrible names. Um, I have a scar above my eye right here where I remember this so vividly. I, she was yelling at me and she told me to go to my room and she was chasing behind me. And I just remember being so scared and just like trying to get away from her. And when I got into the bedroom, she pushed me. And I fell and I hit my eye on a metal bed frame, you know, like those L brackets that hold yeah. the box spring. Mm -hmm. And it just yeah. cut it open. And I don't think she took me to the hospital. I just, I actually, she added me on Facebook. I haven't talked to them in. What? I, I went through, I went through 36 foster homes about um, after wow. we were removed from them. Um but yeah, I think I was in my 20s and she added me on Facebook and I hadn't spoken to her in a lot of years. And I, I just remember getting so upset because she posted something about child abuse prevention. And I was like, there's no way, there's no way. And then um, she would comment on things and be like, she still does. She was, but I wanted to see how good I'm doing. That's why I, I let her stay on there. Wow. It's kind of out of, out of spite. Yeah, uh, I mean, like, I'm surprised you haven't tried to sue her or, I, or something. I, I know. I, she seems like she's doing pretty miserable, so I'm not. I mean, it is what it is, I guess. But yeah, I wrote her a message and I said, how can you write on my page and say you're proud of me? Like you had something to do with this. You were in my life for one year and it was horrible. And I was very young. Like, And I asked her about the abuse that happened and you know, her first thing was, well, I was abused too. And um, I, I just kept asking her all these questions. I asked her why she duct taped me to a chair. She said that I would find food on the ground and eat it. And I, she said, I'm sorry, that doesn't make any sense now. You know, and I told her, I was like, well, I had come from a place of extreme neglect. I was, that's the only way I knew how to get food. I was surviving. And then I asked her also about these injections. So they had a son that lived in the home. And I spoke to him when I started this whole search. I, I just searched everyone in my family. I just wanted, I wanted answers. And I spoke to him about it. And I said, do you remember like these injections they used to give us? And he said, only the girls got them. I just remember going in the bathroom and I'd have to pull my pants down and they would give me shots in my butt. And I asked her about it and she said, she doesn't remember that. She did. She was very honest about a lot of things, though, to an extent. You know, she kind of didn't take accountability. Right. And how about your uncle? Are, are, is she still with him? No. Was, was he? He was um, accused of sexual abuse. And then she told me that, I don't remember this, but she was like, I took care of you when he pulled a gun on me. And I said, why did he pull a gun on you? And she said, because he was accused of sexual abuse and he was upset. And so he held a gun to my head. And I was like, 
that doesn't really sound like the actions of an innocent person. Mm. Um, she goes, I don't think he ever did that. And I said, well, I don't think an innocent person would pull a gun on their spouse if they brought up that that was potentially happening. And it's just, it was weird. And I'm, I kept wanting to apologize uh, for putting, really? uh, what? for making what? her uncomfortable, for asking her and prodding about these things. And I really had to center myself. And I, I just reminded myself to say thank you. So I just kept saying, thank you for being open. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for speaking with me because I wasn't going to apologize. I, I kept reminding myself not to. Right. And you were trying to keep your eye on the prize, which was information. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you were removed from there because the caseworkers realized something was going on, but you weren't talking about what was going on and you really didn't talk a lot about what happened to you then for many years, right? Yeah. Um, there were instances where I did tell people what was happening because I experienced abuse in many of my foster homes. So there were lots of instances where I did tell people, you know, counselors or um, people at school. And generally, like if you tell the counselor, we would be put on like a point system or some kind of, of reward system for acting better. And so it just really internalized this thought that I must be doing something wrong and that's why they're hitting me or I must not be acting good enough. And I stopped telling people because it, it seemed embarrassing. I was like, well, yeah, they hit me because I did something wrong. I don't want to tell people about all this wrong stuff that I did. Hmm. And at a certain point I just stopped telling people. And I think I'd, I, I knew it was wrong, but I just didn't think anyone cared or anybody was going to do anything. And it, it was going to make it worse. Yeah. So then you were almost adopted or there was a failed adoption. So when you were eight, tell me about that. Yeah. So this was right after we had our last visit with our sister. And I, I know that she had kind of known about the adoption and they, we were living in Portland, Oregon at the time. And they said, Hey, you guys are moving to Eugene, Oregon. And I said, what's Eugene? Like, that's so weird. <laughs> and yeah. we met with a family and we, I think we desperately wanted to just fit in and have a family, but right away, we, I think we kind of knew something was off and we, it was a very weird situation. I still haven't gotten to the bottom of it. They weren't supposed to be adopting from foster care. They were actually trying to adopt someone within their family. And somehow we came into the picture and, and we're three hours away. I mean, we we're in the same state, but I just, I'm not, I haven't put the pieces of that together quite yet. And um, we were in the court hearing for our adoption and my brother and sister and I asked if we could keep our names. And my sister remembers it better than I do, but they told her that she's not old enough to make that choice. And they changed our last names. And then we lived there for about three years and they were extremely abusive. They picked me up by my hair at one point and threw me down the stairs. I was in like third grade, second grade. And I remember trying to kill myself with bleach because I, it was so horrible there. They would make me stand in the corner and they, I wore glasses. I don't think I needed them, but I think I thought they were cool. 
and <laughs> I was fidgeting and he came up behind me and smashed my head into the corner and my glasses broke and they would sleep me on top of my sister. And he was like, you know, smashing her head into the wall and I would stand up to him and I, I weighed, I don't know, 40 pounds. I was tiny. And I was like, I'll fight you. Don't touch my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, they also locked all the food in the garage. We had no access to it to the extent that um, they would leave out one cup of cereal for us in the mornings. We had a babysitter and her name was Desi. And she was this really, really sweet old lady, very tan, very wrinkly, really awesome. Like I loved her. And she would buy a cereal and we would have to hide it under our mattresses because they would, they, we had no access to food. So she knew you, you weren't getting fed. I think she just thought that they had a very weird way of parenting because they would leave out food, but it never was enough for us to eat. And all the other stuff was locked up and she didn't even have access to it. There was a lock on the fridge. There was a lock on the garage where all the rest of the food was. And I, I've wondered that, like, how did she not know something weird was going on? But I think she just thought they had a weird way of parenting. So how did you get out of that? Or what, when you say failed adoption? I ran away twice um, and I went to the police station and I gave them my biological last name because I didn't want them to find where I lived and make me go back. And I told them what was happening the first time and the second time I did again. And the second time is when they, I think, started maybe investigating. And then there was one day that... I was scared. My sister and I had a room upstairs. It was like a refinished attic and there was a hallway between our bedrooms and I was so scared. And so my adoptive dad came and he slept upstairs. And in the middle of the night, my sister came and she put her hand over my mouth and I thought it was my little brother. And I was like, David, go back to bed. And I think he had given me melatonin or something, but I couldn't stay awake. And then I just remember the bathroom door opening and him grabbing her arm and taking her to her bedroom. And in the morning, they were gone. And my sister was behind the couch. And I guess like when he came downstairs, he said, it's okay to come out from behind the couch now. And then he went to work. And I just remember my sister talking with Desi. And she told Desi that he raped her that night. And um, they removed him from the home. But they still made us stay for months. For months. And I ran away again, I think. I think that was the second time I ran away. Um, because nothing was happening. We just had to stay there. And they finally removed us. And after that, they separated all three of us. And we all three had our own foster care journey after that. We had probably been in about 15 homes before then. Maybe 10, 10 to 15 individually. And is you think that's because they were trying to keep you together and then things didn't work out? Well, you haven't been able to see your, your, your court records, which is astounding to me. You said you got eight pages yeah. and most of it was redacted. Yeah. Yeah. I requested them and most of it was redacted and uh, they said that I didn't have privilege to it. And I'm like, well, it's my abuse. But luckily my younger brother, he was adopted at 16 And his caseworker gave him his records, which is like when they do records, especially for siblings, they make one copy of everything. They put it in all the the files. So there was stuff in there for me and stuff in there for him and stuff in there for my sister. 
And uh, there was actually the police report, which stated that he failed a lie detector test. He refused to take the first one and he failed the second one, the adoptive dad. And um, mm-hmm. there was just tons of police reports in there and documents. And it's about 300, 400 pages. And I, I read it all in one night when I got it. I was in shock. Oh, my. That must have been some night, right? That was, yeah. <laughs> wow. One night. I can just imagine. You must have been like, just, well, okay, so. All right, so let's talk a little bit more. You had a casa. You had two, actually, but it doesn't sound like things were great. I mean, she was nice. You liked her. She gave you presents. But yeah. what was she doing? I don't think that I don't think that they knew how bad it was. I think people have a tendency not to believe children or think that children are over-exaggerating. And I was a very hyperactive ADHD child. And I could, I guess, be a little bit dramatic sometimes. So I think it's just hard especially when you're a child that's gone through trauma to get people to believe you or to really understand how bad the abuse is. Right. And as, and as you said, there's a certain amount of shame and embarrassment involved. And then when you try to get help and they don't believe you over and over again, you just, you probably shut down. Yeah. And so I don't think that I, I probably didn't mention it. I don't ever remember telling them about it, but yeah, I don't I don't think that they knew. I think if they did they would have done something or I hope that they would have. And all this time you've you didn't have any contact with your mom. She was out of the picture. Completely out of the picture. I haven't um well I hadn't seen her um since we were removed. We would go to visits and she wouldn't show up. Mm. And then I did find her when I was older. Um it's what happened? I flew I was living in Alaska at the time at Fort Wayne Night. I flew to Portland to meet her. Well, I did some internet sleuthing and I found somebody that knew her and then I got her phone number. I'm, I'm like a spy on the internet. I can find anyone. <laughs> and I called her and I said, hi, like I'm your daughter. Like, do you remember me? And she was like, I gave birth to you. And I was like, oh, okay. And, um, you know, she was kind of the same thing, like where she just wasn't accountable for her actions, but I did fly to go meet her. And it was kind of all a blur. My best friend went with me and she drove up from Eugene and it was just a blur. And at first she thought I was my sister and she didn't remember which one I was. And it was awkward and she was very obviously high on meth. It was, it was just a weird thing. And she just kept making all these excuses and saying that it wasn't her fault that we were taken away. And I didn't talk to her for a long time after that. And then I think in like October or November, I reached out to her again. And it was the same thing kind of where she was just saying that none of it was really her fault. She said, there's some big conspiracy theory. We were taken away due to money and they have oil money or something. And I was like, well, if you guys have all this oil money, like, I didn't see a dime of it. So hmm. um, she says that that's why we were taken away. And 
that she had lawyers and she has all these documents that she wants to give me and she had no part of it and she didn't do anything wrong. And so then I said, well, what about Nathan? And that's uh, in the documentary. My sister remembers the name of the guy that did that to her. And um, she was like, well, that was his fault. And he chose to do that. And just in regards to the violent sexual abuse that happened in her home. And she took absolutely no accountability for it. And then she was, she was aware of my sister's trafficking. And she said, well, she wanted to go with those people. So she wasn't really kidnapped. Wow. And I said, she was 11. She was 11 and she was coerced into somebody's car. That's kidnapping. She's like, well, she was, she was willing. And I said, that's impossible. She was a child. She just didn't really care. I know that her and my sister met up when after my sister's trafficking and after the psych ward um, in my sister's, you know, rough time after that, she found our mom. And in the documentary, she talks about how my mom only wanted to see her if she brought her drugs. Uh, it's kind of like very apparent that she has more of, she doesn't have any protective instinct at all. And that's why I think she just thought like as an 11 year old, that she was more of an adult than she was. She didn't see her as a child. She saw her as a grown person making grown people decisions. It was just a weird conversation. And then, you know, she started crying and I recorded the whole conversation because the last time I talked with her, I had a really hard time remembering. Yeah, it becomes a blur, I'm sure, right? Yeah. And you, it's, it's like a lot of white noise, right? It's and, intense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you're so smart. You recorded it so you could have documentation to figure it out, right? Yeah, I just wanted to be able to go back and listen because it's, it's just so intense and it's a lot of emotions and my brain just kind of blocks it out. Um. Yeah, she started crying and she was like, This is really hard for me. And I was like, For you, for you. Mm-hmm. Um, she wanted you to feel sorry for her. She did, absolutely. And then she said, You know, you know, I told her she has a granddaughter. Um, and I said, You know, you're more than welcome to see photos of her. And she said, Yeah, send me um, some pictures and call me tomorrow. And I want to talk more. She goes, This is just really hard right now. And I said, I understand that. And Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. And um, I just tried to hold space for her feelings. And I got off the phone with her. I sent her three pictures. My daughter and I get a lot of like professional photos done. We just like going to having a good time. And um, I've seen them. They're gorgeous. They're gorgeous. <laughs> um, I sent her that and she didn't say anything. And then... Um, I called her the next day and she never, she never answered the phone again. Mm. And so I still hold space for the fact that it's probably very hard for her to deal with. But I realized a lot of my life I've protected her or protected this idea that I had of a mother. And I had to like really let go of that and realize that there's not hope for her to be a good person. She's not a good person and she doesn't see us as children for her children, and she never did. I'm sure that was really disappointing. It, it definitely was, but it was kind of freeing because there was a lot of stuff that I didn't talk about or I tried to give her the benefit of the doubt. And lots of my story that I didn't share because I was afraid of 
how it would make other people look. And I realized that if they didn't want to look bad, they wouldn't have abused us. They wouldn't have done the things that they did if they didn't want people to know that they were bad people. And it's my story to share, not my secret to keep for them. And so I definitely started, I I felt free to just share everything, not protecting anyone anymore because that's not my responsibility. Wow. That's right. Wow. That's, that's a huge, huge leap. It was, yeah, it was a big move. Wow. So I just want to go back to something you mentioned uh, when we spoke on the phone. You said that you were also abused by another older sister or another sibling. What what happened with that? Um, when we were at our biological aunt and uncle's placement, uh, we would have visits with our older siblings. And there was one instance where um, abuse happened during one of those visits. And I don't remember it very well, but I remember going back and telling my aunt, hey, this happened and it was, it didn't feel good and I didn't like this. And she said, do you know what you're saying right now? And I said, well, yeah, like, I want her to get in trouble because she hurt me. (laughs) Like, it's not fair. And she said, never tell anybody this again. And so I kind of just blocked it out. Like, I always knew that it had happened and I had the memory of it, but I just never told anyone again. I can recognize now that we were both kids that were going through really horrible things. And so I don't hold any hate or any resentment for my older sister for what she did. And this is the two that were removed before us four were born. So that was really one of the only times I'd ever even seen them. We didn't really know them at all. But I know that she was going through her own abuse and her own sexual abuse, and I don't hold any. Sorry, I don't hold any um, hate for her. How do you think you're doing that, Lisa? Because it's kind of amazing. Like, you don't, uh, you know, I'm looking at you. I hear you, and I I hear incredible warmth and kindness and. Um, grace. I, I, I'm just wondering how you're, how you arrived there. Um, I think it's kind of selfish actually, because I do it just to keep my own peace for the most part. I just don't have a lot of room to be angry. I'm definitely angry. I definitely still have anger inside of me for a lot of the things that happened, but I've had to learn how to channel that and and live with it in a way that is not emotionally draining and taxing on me every day. I really just kind of had to let go of a lot of things. I still hold people 100% accountable, but that's like, that's a them thing. You know, those were choices that they made. And I think the way I was holding on to it, I was holding so much guilt for feeling like I made them act that way, or I was a bad kid and, I made them do that to me and I had to reshape the way I thought about everything. I'm super grateful for my education. You know, I went to college. I recently just got back from a child protection program at Harvard. Uh, I know. Bravo. (laughs) Bravo. I've just learned so many amazing things um, 
from so many amazing people and I've applied them to my life as well. And I, you know, I read tons of books and people send me books all the time and mostly do it for me. It's not, it's not for them. I don't want them to take any more of my energy than they already have. That's right. Cause they've taken so much already, right? Yeah. So you aged out when you were 18. I did. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. What happened? Oh, I was in a foster home where there was a, it was a single lady, maybe in her late forties. And she had, I think there were six kids in the home at the time. There was, and three of them were very mentally delayed. And one of them was like extremely violent. She had, I think she was in overhead, but she would basically just be in her room all day drinking and smoking cigarettes in her bedroom. She was also abusive to the kids. We had one little boy there and well, we had two little boys, one that she liked and one that she didn't. The little boy that she didn't like, I, he was the cutest kid. I would let him come hang out with me because she was so foul to him. One of her dogs had an accident in the house and she blamed him. He was 11 years old. She blamed him and she rubbed his face in it. She was a horrible person. And, you know, I let him sleep in my room that night and he just cried. And it was just, there's like really nothing you can do though. Cause you know, she would, if you tell, you know, she can be like, Oh, that was an accident or they're exaggerating. And so I had started college early at like 16, almost 17 because I had gone to six different high schools and I couldn't maintain it. So I got my student loans and she asked me for money, which I know she was making a lot of money for all of those children she had in her home. Yes, um, she was. Very much money, but she was spending it. She would buy like Chanel purses, like just for no reason. And then just stay in her room and smoke cigarettes. And I was like, what, why are you even buying that stuff? And so she asked me for money because there, she didn't have money to feed the kids. And so I gave it to her and my guy friend was over and um, I went and got my nails done because I, I never had money before. So I spent some of my student loans and I just treated myself a little bit and she would get very jealous. So she was like, oh, you went and got your nails done. And I was like, well, yeah. And um, I don't, I don't remember what she was upset with me about the nails or the money or something. I, I don't really remember. And, um, she told me that I had to leave and go to a respite home, which was probably going to be like 40 minutes away where the bus, the city bus didn't go. So I wouldn't be able to get to college. And I think it was finals week or midterm week. And I said, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going there. You can't just send me away for no reason. I think this was like the day of my 18th birthday. And she was like, well, your guy friend can stay the night. He was older. He was in his 20s. And I was like, that's weird. Like, she wanted him to stay the night, but me to leave. Weird. And I was like, this is super weird. And I was like, well, I'm calling my sister. And my sister had aged out already. And she was on her own, but living with friends. My sister is gorgeous. She's a swimsuit model. Like, she's beautiful. And she does modeling full time now. And she is pretty as you. She's yeah. prettier, <laughs> much prettier. Okay, that's tough and, to beat, but I believe you. Um, my foster mom would be very insecure, and she had already said that my sister's not allowed at the house or near the house. And hmm. she goes, "Your sister can't come here." And I was like, "Well, I'm not leaving 
to go to a respite home when I have midterms. So my sister's going to come get me. I'll stay the night over there if you don't want me at your house. And she got like angry, so angry. And she kicked all of the kids out of the house. And we lived on a very busy road. So she locked all the doors. All of the kids were outside. And so I'm here trying to like wrangle these children. I think I called the police. I was like, I don't know what to do with all these kids. They're super busy road and they have mental disabilities. And they're like, I, I was in over my head. The police got there and they were saying, oh, well, you know, she said that you can come in and that it's not a big deal. And like behind their back, she was making faces at me. And I was like, I'm not staying here. I called my caseworker and I was like, what do I do? And she was like, well, you're 18 now. So you're not in foster care anymore. And I was like, okay, well, where am I supposed to go? She said, well, you can go to the mission. I was like, I can't go stay at the mission. And after that, I was homeless. I just packed my stuff in some bags and I stayed on people's couches when I could. Um, I stayed outside a few times. I just tried to get on my feet. I was still going to college, but it was, and I was working. It was terrible. And that was three years, right? Yeah, that was three years. I was a part of the ILP program, which is what all children go to when they, when they're getting ready to age out. But I was working at Old Navy doing like shipping, like getting all the shipments in and setting up the displays. And so I would go there at like three or four in the morning until like eight or nine. And then I would go immediately to class. And the IL- I didn't have a car. I-, I took the city bus everywhere. The ILP program, we had to go to like every Thursday or every other Thursday or something like that. And I would miss it because I would be at class or I would be working. And they said that I wasn't dedicated enough to the program and they kicked me out. And so I got no services. I got no help. I got no help with rent, no help finding a place to live, nothing. And that's what the program's designed for. And I just remember like thinking, I'm a dog. I remember thinking, (laughs) how am I supposed to survive? How this is unfair. Like I'm working, I'm going to school, I'm doing all the things that you wanted me to do. And you're kicking me out because you don't think that I'm doing enough for your program or helping your program. And I understand the funding is very limited, but I think they just kind of pick their favorites. And I was not one of them. But you are a survivor. So you ended up joining the army. I did. So at 21, I found myself very homeless again, and I was hungry and I didn't know what to do. And I walked into the recruiter's office and you know, I asked him, I was like, how soon can I leave? I was like, you know, I did the test. He bought me Applebee's. I was very happy. <laughs> I was starving. And um, yeah, I originally wanted to be a medic, but they needed helicopter mechanics. And so I became a helicopter mechanic. And that's what you do now. That's which what is I do. Astounding. Yes. I even I went and got my degree in health and human services, and I I didn't I'm not using it because I I make a very good money doing what I'm doing as a helicopter mechanic, and I I love it. I love what I do. So I just started doing like volunteering, foster care outreach, volunteering, and using my degree in um, a way that makes me happy. Right. So can you tell me a little bit about the organizations that you're aligned with and that that kind of work that you're doing? Yeah. So I recently did, I do a lot of like fundraisers, like 
organizations will reach out to me, um, like Do Good. They reached out to me and asked me if I would do their CASA fundraiser. Um, I've done a fundraiser with Together We Rise, which is a program that gives children bags instead of trash bags because foster kids, Mm -hmm. when you move, they hand you a trash bag and that's what you put your life in. Yeah. And I don't think people realize that, that that usually black plastic bag Exactly. Your stuff goes in there. And by the way, you don't you don't even get your stuff. You might get some of your stuff. Yeah. A, a few of your the things. Toys are, these are the house toys. They're not for you. They have to stay here. Yeah. Or yeah, or or even things that were given to you. Yeah. They, they don't end up with you. Yeah, and that happens a lot because you don't you don't have a lot of room when you're moving all the time. But yeah, Together We Rise gives um, them duffel bags and they, they're doing bikes right now. Um, I work with Nest, which is the trafficking organization. I'm working with a new trafficking prevention organization. Yeah, I just, I work with a lot of people that reach out to me and I do a lot of Zoom meetings, a lot of interviews. And just, I recently did a a gentle parenting course where, you know, I was one of the guest speakers and just talk about parenting after trauma and how to um, handle your triggers and, and recognize and separate your inner child and uh, heal your inner child while you're parenting. Um, and, ha- and how has having a daughter changed the way you are, if, if it has? A hundred percent it has. It changed my whole life. I, I think it, like, it definitely healed my inner child, seeing her and watching her speak so kindly to everybody. And realizing that she does that because that's how I speak to her. And um, watching her interact with other kids. Her teacher told me that they have um, an autistic boy in their class. And sometimes he gets overstimulated or frustrated. And she called me and she was like, your daughter just immediately went over to him and redirected him. He was like, well, let's go do this. And she was just, this is in kindergarten. And she was just able to recognize that he was getting upset and that he just needed redirection. And Mm. that's what I do to her when she's upset. I'm like, well, let's try something else and we can come back to this. And that's exactly what she said to that little boy. Let's try something else and we'll come back to this later. (laughs) So how do you think you learned that? Because you didn't have any of that. So, I mean, well, you're, as you said, you're very bright. You read a lot. You're like a sponge. You're taking everything in, but somehow you're filtering it. As you said, for yourself to make your life better, to make yourself better. And then in in the end, also to make a beautiful child, a beautiful, happy, well-adjusted child. Yeah. I think that I 100% remember the way I felt um, when people spoke to me meanly or hit me or made me feel inferior. And I just see my beautiful child. I don't want her to feel that way ever it's hard. You know, we, sometimes I'll just restart my day. I'll be like, I'll get so overstimulated or frustrated. And I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to restart the day and just start it over new day. And, um, I just, I never want her to feel the way I did. And I want her to have confidence. I don't want her to have anxiety like I do. I just, I want her to be better than everything I was or everything that I could be. I want her to rise above that. You know, this is just so important because as you know, there is, there is generational trauma. There is generational foster care. There is generational abuse. And it gets just repeated from family 
member to family member, just down the line and you're stopping it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I don't know how much of, I know some of my trauma is going to be passed on, but I'm doing my best to make sure that it's, it stops. And, you know, I practice gentle parenting or considerate parenting and I have to make sure that she's protected and that it ends here. Can you tell me about your tattoos? Um, yeah, I love getting tattoos and I love covering my body because now my body is my own and it, I get to do what I want with my body and make it look the way I want. And I would self-harm a lot as a young teenager because I didn't know how to handle my trauma and I didn't understand it. And um, instead of having those scars on my legs and arms, I tattooed over them. And I get a lot of TikTok hate for my tattoos, but I love them. And my body is what I want it to be and what I want it to look like. And no one gets to tell me what I have to do with it anymore. Right. So how did you harm yourself? Did you use a, a blade, a knife? A, I did. A I, I would um, take open the shaving razors and I would use that. And um, my foster sister walked in on me once and I was like bleeding a lot. And I remember, I think I was... 15 at the time she went and got her mom and her mom said let her bleed out she's stupid for doing that and then my foster sister was her biological daughter and so she was a year older than me and she ran my arm under cold water and she was like put this on there and I wasn't trying to kill myself ever I just didn't know how to handle my trauma I think I wanted to be in charge of my pain I needed some type of control because I had no control over anything so as, as you look back now on, on, on your life and who you've become, how do you feel about what you've done? I am incredibly hard on myself, so I never think that it's enough. I'm always doing more and more and more. And I was at this, that professional course at Harvard, and I was like, how did I get here? I'm, I'm covered in tattoos, and I'm sitting there in this class, and I was just like, how? how did I end up here? This is crazy to me, but it just never feels like enough. I always want to do better. I call it surviving out of spite. And wait, 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 surviving out of spite. Yes. I, Mm. um, you know, that'd be a great song. Everybody wants to know how, (laughs) like, how are you so resilient? How are you? How did you handle all of this? And I just, you know, honestly, I just want to be better than everyone who ever abused me, everyone who ever told me I can't, everyone who told me I couldn't do something or I wasn't worthy of something. I want them to see what I'm doing and I want them to realize that they're not going to make it to where I am. I think that's where my resilience comes from. And also, from hearing you speak and also knowing about your work, you are set on changing the world. Right? You're like, you're going to put an end to a lot of shit that you don't like. And so it doesn't happen to anybody else. Yeah. I'm definitely trying to raise that awareness. So many people don't understand that foster care is not this miracle program that saves kids. Foster care is they have trauma. No idea. And it doesn't, trauma. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter if you're in foster care one day or you're adopted immediately. It, it's all of that is trauma. And we're creating this generational trauma 
and we're failing all of these kids. Like kids should not turn 18 and have no idea where they're going to live. That's society's most vulnerable children. And we're just, you're, you're on your own. People don't realize that, that aging out happens or the way it works. They don't realize that kids are getting abused in foster care, that not all um, adoptive parents are good people. Not everybody has good intentions. There, don't get me wrong, there are some amazing foster parents and amazing adoptive parents, and I want to give them huge shout-outs and huge props because we need amazing foster parents. It's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just need more. We need exactly. more of them. And yeah. we need people to recognize that this stuff is happening and we need to change it and we need to wake up to it and we need to make sure that we're setting these kids up for success. Only 3% of foster youth graduate college and only 50% graduate high school. And we are completely failing them. And you also told me a very disturbing statistic the other day that I I know is also true, that 80% of kids who are trafficked spent time in foster care. Yes. So I think that's the correct number. 80% of the people rescued from trafficking came from foster care. That's right. Because they are such a vulnerable population. Yeah. And uh, most of the people on death row were foster kids. That's and, right. Incarceration. Yep, 71% of fostered females will become pregnant by age 21. 50% of them will be before they're 18. It's. I saw your quiz on Instagram. <laughs> yes. Yep. I'm, I hope people look at that. I, I hope people wake up and realize we're failing these kids. Foster care is a broken system that it needs funding. It needs attention and it needs change. I don't really see foster care advertisements or, you know, everyone has this idea of foster kids and they don't want to adopt from foster care because they're traumatized or they're this. And their problems, their problem kids. Yeah. Everything I you hear about foster kids is incredibly negative. Yep. And um, I, yep. I want to try to change that narrative. I think that's really important work. Actually, the organization that I work with in Los Angeles called Peace for Kids has a program called Changing the Narrative. I believe that's the actual term. And they are set on changing how youth who have lived foster care experience are portrayed in the media because they're always portrayed or not always they say 90% of the time they're portrayed as the problem kids, the victims, um, the abusers, the ones that are going nowhere. And the reality is they're just kids who need love and support and guidance unconditionally so that they can heal and try to become whole or at least have something in their lives that can push them forward, propel them forward to arrive at a place where you are. And, you know, it's, you're unusual. You know, you are. I hear that a lot. I hear that so much. And it's so sad to me. It gives me this kind of like guilt of, you know, achieving everything that I've achieved and being where I'm at. It, It makes me feel so guilty that, that I am the exception and not the normal because I feel so bad for all of the other wonderful kids that I grew up with who haven't achieved that or don't have the opportunity to achieve that and who are not able to recover from their trauma. You know, society sees them as addicts and losers and they're just products of their environment and not everybody recovers from trauma. I just, sometimes I just feel guilty. It, it, it makes me feel like I, I have to speak up. I'm I have an obligation to speak up for them. Well, I think it's feeding your work. I mean, uh, and you are, you have outreach, you know, big outreach. But I will tell you that since launching this podcast, and I'm not curating it, I have heard so many stories of triumph. Yes, 
much trauma, but also amazing stories of triumph. So there are a lot of kids out there that are saving themselves, that are taking themselves to the police station, that are reporting the abuse, that uh, that are somehow get believed. And I, I think the system is changing somewhat for the better, but is so marred and so problematic that it it needs systemic change. And people like you can make it happen because you spent time in it. And your authenticity, your your real stories, people are paying attention to, Lisa. That's what I recognize at Harvard. There was a, a foster care expert, I, I would say, very renowned, written lots of books, very well educated. And she came in and she was talking to us. And I didn't speak up a whole lot. I was very shy in the class. There was 10 different countries there that were all trying to change child protection in their countries. And there was government mm-hmm. representatives from all these different countries there to learn how to do better for their kids in their country. I realized as when I was watching her, I was like, you know, I, I could do that. I could be up there teaching people. I said, because I can always get more education, but she's never going to be able to get my lived experience. That's right. And we need representation. Like, it's great that she has all this education. It's great that she's teaching people. Uh, but we need people who understand it from the inside out to make these big changes and to get in there and be allowed in spaces where we're talking about foster care. We need foster care representation. I can't wait to see what, what else you're going to do. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just awesome. Don't put that pressure on me. (laughs) No, 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 no. And I'm going to help you. We're all going to help you. Everybody, you know, is going to help you. I want to ask you one last thing that I ask all my guests and you're very forthcoming. So I don't know what you can surprise me with, but what is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? Yeah. I think that a lot of people get caught off guard that I have severe social anxiety. I, you know, my, I have my TikTok followers. I have my Instagram followers. I, I speak on there, but even when I'm recording them and my hands are shaking, it's so hard for me to talk and record things. And, you know, I'm covered in all these tattoos and I walk around, you know, people think I'm this very confident person, but if I'm, if I get, I, my face turns bright red, I'm like, I am just wow. the most severe social anxiety. Wow. Yeah. I would never have guessed that because it looks like you're so comfortable. You're just so out there. You're just doing your thing. And if people want to check it out, great. If they don't, who cares? It's so hard because inside I feel like I'm going to explode literally all the time. I think I've just found ways to, to mask that so that people don't Mm -hmm. see it. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it makes people assume a lot of things about me like, Oh, well she must've had a great life or she seems very well put together. How bad could it have been? And, um, yeah, on the inside, I'm always like, I'm going to (laughs) explode. But you know, that's also what's so interesting about some of your TikToks is that uh, the um, the juxtaposition of what you're saying and what you're doing, that when you're talking about your experience in foster care, and it's also a makeup tutorial, it's just the it's just really interesting, you know, because if you pay attention to what you're saying, it's shocking, and people are paying attention. They are. People are definitely starting to listen. I've taken kind of a social media hiatus lately. I definitely need to get back to it, but I do like um, the foster care Fridays when I try to share things. I try not to make it so heavy all the time. It's hard because there's so much 
heaviness when we're talking about foster care and especially when I'm talking about my trauma. So I try to lighten up the mood on there sometimes and break it up. Yeah, I, I, I like it when you talk about the pouty lip. <laughs> <laughs> um, so is there anything else you want to add? Um, and also, I want you to know, this is now being heard in 47 countries and 700 cities around the world. I don't know who those people are, but there's <laughs> somebody listening. And so a lot of people might hear this. I just want people to learn about foster care. Take a second and learn about the statistics for where you're at, your country, what your country's doing, what your state, city, what your representatives are doing about foster care, how much of your funding is going into foster care. Learn about aging out. Just pick something and try to learn about that. It's important everywhere. Like I, I met someone from Honduras at the program I went to, and they're just starting their program. And he you know, he's going to reach out to me and ask me questions about how to make their foster care program. And I said, you guys have such a unique opportunity right now to be the only country doing it right. You can see what everyone's doing wrong because they haven't had foster care until a couple of years ago. But just like that stuff, reach out to or just do a Google search in your country and your state and find out what your country has, what it's doing or what your city has. And then get involved. Yes, get involved. Um, <laughs> I like I tell so many people like CASA is a great way to get involved and you can just, you know, kind of be a mentor and help kids. And, uh, you know, if you don't want to, if you're not ready to be a foster parent, you don't want to be a foster parent. CASA is a great way to get involved. And if you don't want to do that, then just see what your representatives are doing. Make sure you're looking at who you're voting for and seeing if they're doing anything for foster care, if, if it's even being talked about at that level. There's 650,000 kids approximately right now in this country at any one time that are, are in some kind of foster care or kinship care. And the numbers only continue to grow, unfortunately. Yeah. So they need us for sure. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. I had a great time. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad that I reached out to you. Then you answered. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> Thank you. I, this is a great opportunity. I love it. Good. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. That's an incredible story you have to tell. And it's really great that you're giving back. And with all the support you've created on social media, you're really making a difference. So thank you for being on the show and thank you for all you're doing. You can find Lisa Maria at IG at Miss Lisa Pisa or TikTok at Miss Lisa Pisa. And if you find yourself able to help in any way, you can reach out to Nest. Together we rise. You can take a look at Do Good Collective, which is a streetwear company started by our previous guest, Ryan Wilson, while he was in college. And 10% of the proceeds go to helping foster youth. You can contact Kids to Love and Atlantic Counter Trafficking if you know someone who's being manipulated or taken advantage of by sex traffickers. Anything you can do to help or increase your awareness helps everyone. In next week's episode, we hear from Mary Rathbone. In the past five years, Mary and her husband, Alan, have been foster parents to 10 different children, with a sibling group of four back with them now for the second time. Mary sees a deep need for changes to the foster care system to prevent good foster parents and case managers from throwing in the towel, and more importantly, sweeping changes in the biological family unit to stop kids from entering foster care in the first place. Thank you for listening, and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, 
Contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.